Hello and welcome to Staff Picks, the podcast for movie nerds by movie nerds. As always, I'm Mario Lanza and I am your host on our journey through the movies out there that just need a little more love. And our movie today is a personal favorite. We are going back to the 80s, my bread and butter for this podcast. And we are talking about a movie that's not especially uh, obscure or hard to find. It's just one that I think should be talked about a little more. And it is the 1983 masterpiece War Games starring Matthew Broderick, which I will give one of the rare seals of approval to a movie that I can say here. This is one of those movies that I think is almost flawless that there's very minimal nitpicks I can make with it, so I will not be making fun of it as we talk about it. I just would like it to be known as one of the greatest movies of the 80s, which it really is and always has been. So, we'll be delving into war games here, and my guest for this one is I uh, picked a special guest for you guys. He's someone I've wanted to have on the show for quite a while now. I don't know if you guys have listened to my Cloak and Dagger or my Poseidon Adventure podcast. I had one of my friends from the Survivor community, Ryan Weiss, on, and we had mentioned in there that he has a dad who's relatively famous in the video game community because he's a video game journalist. He writes video uh, books about video games, and he has a YouTube channel. He's got a m- probably much bigger following than I have, so I will be happily be the apprentice. I'll play apprentice to this one on this one. Welcome to my show, Brett Weiss. Thanks, Mario. I really appreciate it. I've been wanting to come on for some time now, but uh, I'm glad to be on. So, Brett, why don't you give people a little history on what you do? Because you have a fascinating background to me. Well, I like I, like you said, I write books about video games, and I've been writing professionally since 1997. I started um, writing short stories in the 90s, and then that didn't pan out too well, so I started um writing for the All Game Guide, which which was this massive online database to describe, catalog, and review every video game for every console and computer. That eventually went away, so I started writing books that were sort of similar, you know, in scope and design. And so I have the classic home video game series. I've got uh, the SNES Omnibus, which is a big two-volume set on the Super Nintendo. And currently, I've got the NES Omnibus, the Nintendo Entertainment the Nintendo Entertainment System and its games. That's uh, my current project, and it's on Kickstarter right now. So, yeah, I just I write books about video games, and I wrote for the Fort Worth Star-Telegram for over a decade, just about pop culture, about movies, about all kinds of stuff. So, yeah, I'm pretty much a writer. That's what I do during the day. And then I've got, you know, just some side hustles here and there. But uh, writing is pretty much what I do. And, you know, I'm all into video games and movies and all the geeky stuff. So, that's that's pretty much it. Um, it's you know with Ryan, you know you mentioned him being on a couple of episodes. I tried to show him a lot of the older movies growing up, so he really has a, a firm grasp on you know the history of movies and movies from different eras. He really appreciates sort of a wide variety of films from different eras. So, but you know we also did the typical you know dad and son stuff. You know throwing the ball around and riding bikes and all that stuff, too. So I like to think my kids had a pretty well-rounded childhood. But uh, we definitely like our geeky movies and video games and all that stuff. <laughs> oh, you and I are going to get along great. This is this is going to be fun. So, Fantastic. Nor- yeah, normally when I have guests on staff picks, they're a lot younger than me. Most of my listeners are in their, like, 20s and 30s. Brett is approximately my age. We are both children of the 80s, even late 70s. And uh, you were raised, of course, in the height of the video game years. And I pretty much grew up in arcades, being abandoned by my parents, just thrown to the wolves in arcades. So. <laughs> <laughs> 
Well, it was perfect. I was 10 when the Atari 2600 and Star Wars came out, so that was perfect timing. And so that, um, and video games back then, they didn't really consume your life like they do, like they can now, you know, with some of these expansive games that take 50 and 100 hours to play. And with all these, you know, massive games online and how they consume you with your phones and stuff, it was Atari and ColecoVision and Intellivision. And you could play them for 30 minutes, an hour, a couple of hours, but then you would want to go outside or do something else. So, Gaming was different back then, but it, but the 2600 was very popular. And it, in 1980, when Space Invaders came out for the 2600, that really bought, brought home gaming into the mainstream, and it just sort of grew from there. But, yeah, I grew up in the arcades as well. Uh, my brother and I would go to Land of Oz Arcade at um, uh, Fort Worth Area Mall, and we went to Malibu Grand Prix every Sunday night, and, man, we just loved it. We didn't have a ton of money, so we would have to sort of – look for tokens and slots and <laughs> pop games on pinball machines to, you know, we had, we had crafty ways to, to play games for free. We were sort of, we were pinball and video game hustlers sort of. So <laughs> sharks. So, but anyway, but yeah, we grew up with all that stuff. It was a great time to grow up. That's very similar to my background because my dad had a law office. My dad was a lawyer, but he was usually very busy. I'd walk to his office after school, and he wouldn't mm -hmm. have time to hang out with me or take me home. So he'd just say, here, there's an arcade next door. We had a showbiz pizza parlor, Chuck E. Cheese type place. And right. he's like, here's five bucks. Play video games until I can drive you home. Mm -hmm. And so you would know this better than anybody. I had to make $5 last a long time. Oh, absolutely. Sometimes I would just watch other people play games just to sort of – which I enjoyed – uh, but just to sort of extend the time, you know, you could be in the arcade without, you know, spending all your money. So you had to kind of meet out your quarters and sort of spend ju judiciously. And one thing I would do is, you know, in pinball, um, a matching like two numbers would appear on the back glass at the end of your game that would maybe match the last two numbers of your score. Well, a lot of people didn't realize that. So we would walk up uh, behind people playing games like maybe little kids or parents that really didn't know much about pinball. And they would walk away when their game was done. And we would have a 10 percent chance of that pinball machine matching. And so we would get a free game. And we would also look for credits on pinball machines and video games. Sometimes that would happen. You would just look around at all the machines. And every once in a while, you would find a credit on one. Either someone had to go away or maybe a little kid stuck a token in there and walked, you know, just there's all kinds of reasons uh, we would find games here and there. We would also search the coin slots for tokens. And if you push the, you know, the, the little release on the coin slot, sometimes a couple of tokens would pop out if they had gotten stuck. So we found a lot of ways to play a lot of games for very cheap. Yeah, you and I were both little hustlers. I love this. <laughs> because a lot of the younger uh, listeners wouldn't understand, like, arcades were basically daycare centers for kids a lot of the time. Your parents would just abandon you there and you had to kill time. So you're literally just walking around looking for quarters or free games for hours. Like, I, I can't even tell you how many hours I spent in arcades just doing that. Oh, yeah. We'd, we'd get dropped off at the skating rink or the bowling alley or um, the mall. And you would just pretty much have free reign. You'd go grab a slice of pizza and, you know, go to Orange Julius and get an orange, you know, one of those crazy orange drinks that they had. And just um, it was just a great time to be a kid. And people weren't as worried so much about you getting snatched back then. <laughs> and you just have a blast. There is one point where I differ uh, from uh, the Matthew Broderick character in the film. You know, I was not a computer person growing up. We did not have a computer in the house. And um, I did play consoles uh, at my friends. We didn't have a video game system until I was 15 because they were just too expensive. But um, I did go to my friends' houses constantly and play their game consoles. But I was completely computer illiterate. 
Okay, that's good, because that leads into my question. I was going to ask if you were a hacker as well, because there was almost like a, the Venn diagram would have been 100% correlation of video game nerds and hackers, but you were one of the rare ones that was not a computer guy. Yeah, this is this is where, I mean, I was into Atari, ColecoVision, Mad Magazine, comic books, Star Trek, Land of the Lost, Super Friends. I loved all that stuff, but we just never had a computer in the house. And, uh, and instead of that, I was always outside playing sports. So I was sort of this rare... Uh, geek that was also really athletic (laughs) anyway so that's how it was you know my dad played sports with us a lot he had sort of a normal nine to five job and when he would get home um we'd have an early dinner and then afterwards he would play with me and my brother outside you know kicking the football playing basketball playing baseball and all that kind of stuff so i had a really good well-rounded childhood i do i do kind of i'm kind of envious of the people that um had more access to computers and that sort of grew up knowing about that because there's been a learning curve. Uh, you know, anytime I, anytime I have a technological question, I'll ask uh, my wife or Ryan. <laughs> so, cause that's not my expertise or excuse me, expertise. And it's funny. I'm friends with a lot of uh, really hardcore gamers. Cause I go to all these conventions and everything. And so many of my um, gamer friends are, you know, really tech savvy and they'll do mods on consoles. They'll do, um, you know, program computers and do all this different stuff. You know, I'm just and I'm just a dummy over here, you know, plugging in a regular Atari 2600 in an old CRT television. You know? <laughs> and so because I'm just, you know, but anyway, that's my one, uh, I guess, gap with all this stuff. OK, but you were a fan of this movie, despite you not being a hacker. Yeah, oh, I love I love the computer culture and I'm fascinated by him, uh, but I'm definitely more on the gaming end of it. And, and I've never really been much of a PC gamer, but I did play the Commodore 64, Atari 8-bit and a TRS-80, the cartridges, you know, the plug-in cartridges, mm-hmm. which were, you know, very similar to having a console. So I played a lot of those and I collect those. And so, yeah, I was all over the movie. In 83, I was 16 when it came out. So I was all over it. And then in the late 80s, when I was renting a lot of, of uh, movies, um, I rented it as well. And I remember in the early 80s when I first got my uh, membership card to a, a, a video store, this was pre-Blockbuster, mm-hmm. you had to pay for your card. So you had to pay for your membership uh, before you could ever even rent a movie. And I think real early on, it was just some ridiculous number. But I remember paying $30 for a, my membership card to even be able to then rent movies different times. <laughs> okay, I'm going to try to even top that. My family could not afford a VCR. So mm-hmm. when we went to the video store, we had to rent the movie and the VCR. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> so right. I do remember that. You could do it. It was like a little briefcase. You take it home and hook it up to your TV. So it was like $4 for a movie and $5 for the VCR for the night. That's awesome. Well, my, my brother sort of was ahead of the game. My parents were sort of behind the times, and, and they didn't splurge and things like this. So my brother actually got him a VCR, and my brother bought the first our first microwave. And, you know, he's older than me. Mm-hmm. And so he would be, you know, working and stuff and he would have the money and he would for presents, he would get them, you know, technology, stuff like that. OK, well, you've touched on it a second ago and I want to use this to delve into our movie here. The computer culture of the late 70s and early 80s. Now, obviously, it's much different than now. Most of my listeners would have no way to relate to the computer culture back then. But like if you were a computer kid and you wanted to really get into this world of computers, that was a different level of nerddom than you and I would have even experienced. Like, they were going to, like, the homemade computer clubs on weekends, and they had these homemade modems and stuff. Like, I never did. I was too young for that. I wasn't, when this movie came out, I was always only nine, so I wasn't quite there. But, like, that was a whole different world. Yeah, and the BBS boards, or whatever they call, you know, the message boards back then, sort of the uh, pre-versions of, you know, the online message boards they have today. 
And um, it would take like sometimes games to download. They would trade, you know, coding for games and it would take like a full day to download uh, a game <laughs> on your computer, just a simple game. So, yeah, it was a crazy and computers were so complicated back then, you know, before Windows and all of that. You really had to be smart and, and really study it before uh, computers were not um, as intuitive as they are today, for sure. So it was definitely a special club. Oh, yeah. No, I remember in uh, high school, early years of high school, one of my dad's friends came over and my dad's like, oh, my son, Mario, he's a computer guy. And I wasn't at all. I didn't know anything about computers, but my dad always thought I did. But this, <laughs> this guy said, oh, I'll teach you how to do uh, Kermit. I think it was called Kermit. And it was some like a pre-Telnet type program where you could hack mm -hmm. into any library of any college in the entire country. And you could look at all their research materials and read all their books. He's like, this is so cool. You can research any. And I'm like, I'm 14. I don't care about this at all, but I appreciate you teaching me. But like, this is the world that we're getting into in this movie of these hardcore computer people before America Online and all that really simplified it for the average user. Well, it's funny. Uh, similarly, people always think I'm a computer guy because I work on a computer and I've learned a ton since I started in the 90s, you know, using computers on a regular basis. So I've learned a whole lot. But most of what I know is pretty, um, you know, just things that enable my job, you know, writing and graphics and, you know, just pretty fairly basic stuff, relatively speaking. But, man, once you get beneath the surface programming and all that stuff, I don't. And, you know, so many people just assume I do. Oh, yeah. No, I, I, I am almost embarrassed to admit this next part. I am not especially a techie and I'm not really good with computers, but I am a programmer in real life. <laughs> that I program. <laughs> yeah, I, uh, my day job, a lot of people don't know this. I write software for the VA hospitals in the country and I oh, pro cool. literally program for a living, but I'm not especially tech savvy. And I don't really like programming. It's just kind of a paycheck. But the way I, I justify that is I use, we use this language called mumps, which was written in the sixties and has never been updated. So like I know mumps, I couldn't tell you any other programming language. I know nothing about <laughs> it. So I'm, a, I'm one of the rare non-techie programmers. <laughs> I've never heard of such a thing. <laughs> That's right. I have the weirdest background once I really delve into my whole picture of who I am. So you and I, we have weird – again, I'm much like you. And also, like I was a jock who was also a nerd. I played baseball. I was an elite athlete all the way up into college. I played American Legion and stuff. But like oh, cool. going home, I just played Dungeons and Dragons. I never went out with the baseball players because I don't relate to jocks. I relate to nerds. So it was, I had a weird dichotomy just like you did. Well, that's funny. So I, I was sort of – awkwardly social in early elementary and then i figured out in late elementary that becoming the class clown could get you popular mm -hmm. and then in junior high and then early high school i became uh, a jock because i'd always played sports and i played ba basketball was my main game i mean if you look at my yearbooks it's just all about basketball and um then at late high school i actually got a job at a restaurant and started hanging out with people much older than me which led to becoming a more worldly person, shall we say. <laughs> and um, so, yeah, so I've, I've gone through many phases. <laughs> and this leads us into the perfect movie for people like Brett and me, War Games, the movie about a computer nerd who almost starts World War III and ends the world. <laughs> Great film. And uh, you and I discussed maybe some other gaming-related movies. I sort of consider this a video game movie since mm -hmm. he does play Galaga. And since it is a war game you know computer games war games video games um but we had discussed maybe doing some other video game movies like joysticks but joysticks is a bad movie it's just kind <laughs> of so bad it's good but I, it's kind of it's cool that we're actually probably covering the best uh, gaming related movie uh that there is fantastic movie well unfortunately i already gave your son cloak and dagger 
So uh, yes, and I hear someone else is doing King of Kong. That's very insulting to me. <laughs> I know. I have a guy who writes about video games for a living, and I'm doing a King of Kong movie about the history of video game and Donkey Kong, and I did not ask Brett, and I feel horrible. Well, what's funny is I actually know I'm friends with several of the people that star in The King of Kong. So I don't know. Maybe I would be too close to the subject. So the, the person you're going to have on, maybe you could have a more uh, objective views. Yeah, you wouldn't be able to talk crap about Billy Mitchell. Oh, I could. <laughs> <laughs> Although we have we've appeared at several events together as guests, you know, just being, you know, given panels and doing autographings and stuff. And he's been he's an interesting character. He's been very nice to me. But I can understand his sort of cocky reputation and the cheating scale and everything. But but uh, he, he's an interesting character for sure. OK, well, just to drive the stake into Brett's heart even further, the next movie I'm releasing on Staff Picks after this one is The King of Kong. So be sure to listen to that one, everybody. Well, Walter Day, I mean, he's a good friend of mine, and he wrote the foreword to one of my books, the, the 100 Greatest Console Video Games, 1977 through 1987. Walter Day, the star of King of Kong wrote the forward to one of my books. So thanks a lot, Mario. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So we're starting off on a bad foot here. <laughs> let's, let's go back to war games, Brett. Let's be friends again. Well, hey, you're having me on for the best gaming movie, so it's all good. All right. Now, again, I said at the top of the podcast here, this is one of those rare movies that I think is almost flawless. In fact, mm -hmm. I was watch, watching it today and just trying to nitpick, trying to pick out anything I could where I can make fun of it and say it doesn't hold up. And I can find almost nothing in this movie that I think is, is perfect, like it's or that it's not perfect. So it's like, are, do you have any nitpicks with it, or would you agree with me this is one of the best movies of the 80s? Well, just about every scene is necessary. The pacing is good. It, it's dramatic, but there's also some humor bits pieced in. There was one puzzling scene where um, where the um, Dabney Coleman character gives his assistant his gum to throw away, and she starts chewing it. I didn't really understand what that was about. <laughs> but So that's your nitpick, the gum chewing? Well, I didn't really – what are they trying to show? You know, what, what was that? But I, I guess that was a little bit of humor. But, but yeah um, – this this movie is pretty much above uh, reproach. I mean, it's a it is a terrific film and it's got great acting and it's not you know when it starts you know they're serious business from the beginning and you, so you know right away uh, that it's not going to be camp you know that it's serious subject matter you've got Michael Madsen in a very early role um, pulling a gun on his partner so you know you know it's serious business from the beginning so if you just if you just see that it's about games and you see Matthew Broderick and that kind of thing. You might think it's sort of a children's movie if you just don't understand. You know, if you if you're the type that per, a person that likes lumps everything into, you know, if it has anything to do with games or cartoons or anything, if you just figure all that's kid stuff. If you start watching, you know, war games, you realize pretty quick that this, that it's a serious film that is, that it's very good and well acted. Yeah, this is again, this is a hardcore movie in that it doesn't pull any punches. I know a lot of eighty movie eighties movies get the reputation of being light and fluffy. This is one I'm always taken by how gripping it is. And even though mm -hmm. you know it what's gonna happen at the end, it really it drives the tension home so well. It's so well like I could if this movie's on TV and I'm scrolling by the channel, I have to watch it just for the last twenty minutes. It's so good. Right. Right. Yeah. Well 
I don't want to discuss the ending yet, but wow, what a great ending. <laughs> okay, we'll get into it. Let, let, me, let me give a quick summary to younger people. I'm assuming most people know War Games. If you don't know it, the short version is it's about this computer hacker back in the early 80s. He's using a modem, one of these nerds who dials around trying to figure out how to crack into things like a video game company and get free games. He accidentally hacks into NORAD, and he plays a nuclear war simulation that he thinks is a game, but it's not a game. He's actually simulating World War III with the NORAD war computer and he almost starts world war three because the u.s and the soviets think it's all real and they actually almost start launching nuclear bombs at each other and that's really the the movie in a nutshell but it's really again really well done and very very tense it just holds up so well i just love the way it's crafted yeah and it's interesting he you know the reason it, it becomes a war is because he elects uh to be russia you know some computer games would i know this just from writing about so many video games a lot of uh, computer and console games give you the choice. You know, in war games, you can be the U.S. or you can be the enemy. You know, like there's Axis and Allies games and things of that nature that let you be the enemy. And him selecting to play as Russia sort of puts it all, you know, into action. Yeah, and let's see, a couple other things here. It uh, stars Matthew Broderick, one of the kings of 80 movie, 80s movies. Um, most people just know Ferris Bueller. He did this. He did a bunch of others off the top of my head. He's unfortunately he's kind of forgotten, buried behind John Hughes movies. But I would say he was just as big as anybody else in the eighties. He's a really, really likable actor, and you can see a little bit of Ferris Bueller in War Games occasionally because he'll throw in a little quip here and there, mm -hmm. and he has that sort of wry smile. But it's definitely it's sort of a different character, more a little more serious, uh, um, smarter. And, you know, Ferris was pretty sharp, and um, David here is even smarter. And But you do see some Ferris Bueller in him. He's just a very likable actor. You know, he does so many things in this film that are illegal, but but he, he, he somehow pulls <laughs> off being really likable. <laughs> yes. David will be forever breaking the law in the movie, but it's okay because, as he tells us, he's under 18, so it doesn't matter. <laughs> right, so it's okay. Okay, let's see. So this movie was pitched to the studios as like a modern day thriller, a Cold War thriller, a paranoia movie, a tech movie. And I don't know if you read up on the trivia, but like the movie studios did not understand this movie. They had no idea what to do with this. Well, that doesn't surprise me because a lot of times, you know, in more recent times, as sort of gamers are now in charge and geeks are in charge and geek is chic and all that stuff. Back in the 70s and 80s, they botched so anything had... So many times they botched things that had to do with gaming or sci-fi or anything because they just didn't get the genre. And I, I could see how that would happen where they didn't just didn't know what this was. Yeah, I was reading that uh, the movie execs read the script and they're like, is this science fiction? <laughs> and the writer's like, no, this could really happen. There's these hackers that are hacking around the computer. And like the execs had no idea what to do with this movie. And I think because of that, it kicked around in the studio system for like four years before they ever made it. Well, it does a fantastic it, – it's kind of funny because, it, it, I mean, it does a fantastic job of, um, you know, Cold War paranoia and just how real, you know, potential nuclear war was. You know, just, you know, if, if, if the computers mess up or if there's, you know, the wrong person in charge, I mean, global, th global thermonuclear war, as they say many times in the film, is a distinct possibility, and the movie really taps into that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, very much a snapshot of its time to the point that I've read they're going to remake War Games. And I'm like, it wouldn't really work now because it's not that time period anymore. 
Okay, so here's my theory on remakes. Okay. And it's I think it's one that I don't I don't know that I've ever heard anybody say this. Tell let me know if I'm wrong. So they tend to remake good movies, right? Why? They need to remake bad movies that have potential and make a good one out of it. Does that make sense? Because when they made like let's say they remade Psycho, pointless. Mm-hmm. Right? They remade The Day of the Earth Stood Still, pointless. Go back and remake sort of a flawed movie fix the flaws and, you know, make something new and good. It's, it just seems pointless to, to me. And like you were saying, you know, War Games is a virtually perfect movie. To remake it is just, it can't be as good or better or, it, or uh, you know, and this is such an 80s movie. I mean, you've got the photo of Reagan by the Defcon 5. You've got the, you know, the kids drinking tab while they play the computer. You've got the classic arcade with Miss Pac-Man, Jungle Hunt, Subrock Zaxxon, all these great games. It's just so 80s. His dog just is out front loose like we had, you know, our pets were back then, you know, even in a, you know, in a, you know, populated suburban area. It's just so 80s. It's really hard to uh, imagine this film being remade. I just don't see it. Yeah, no, I 100% agree with you. And that, in fact, the whole point of this podcast, Staff Picks, is I want people to know about older movies that have kind of been buried and forgotten because that's kind of the culture we live in. There's no video stores anymore. All you can do is watch stuff streaming, and the streaming stuff tends to focus on things that are more recent. There's so much stuff to slog through when you're streaming, and you don't, and you know, you can look up the 50 best movies on Netflix or whatever, and you look at that and look at that, look at this and that. But a lot of times people won't watch anything that's not free and streaming. Mm-hmm. And currently, war games you have to pay for. So a lot of people just aren't going to watch it. But I, but this podcast, after we're done, I am sure there are many people that are going to run rush over to Amazon Prime and watch it because it's a great film. And um, it's definitely worth paying for. My dozens of reader, of listeners. We're going to change the world, <laughs> Brett. It'll get a bump. <laughs> but yeah, that's that's the point, that, that history of movies is kind of being lost because everything's focused mm-hmm. on modern movies, and that's the whole argument with remakes. Well, nobody's going to watch a movie from 83, so let's take this good movie and make it for a modern audience. And that's the kind of stuff, that's the thinking that I really work against on Staff Picks. So I agree with you 100%. Why remake good movies? Yeah, it's pointless. I've heard him talking about wanting to remake Forbidden Planet, and I'm just thinking, please don't. <laughs> Okay, a couple other things I want to mention about this movie. This is one of the rare Seattle movies, and I say that because I'm from Seattle. I grew up in the Northwest. For years, this is one of our this was one of our sources of pride, War Games, because it's one of the rare movies that was filmed in Seattle before the grunge era in the 90s when Seattle became hip and trendy. But it wasn't hip and trendy in 83, so I'm so excited we had this one to put on our resume. That's great. Well, Fort Worth, Texas, you know, not the mecca of filmmaking, but Logan's Run, some key scenes from Logan's Run were filmed in Fort Worth. So we hang our hats on that. I'm very excited you mentioned that because Logan's Run is a movie I've considered for staff picks. Oh, great. Hmm. <laughs> Who are you going to get to be on for that? <laughs> well, I'm not sure. I, I, whoever I pick for King of Kong, I will pick for that one as well. Over you. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. Walter Day. I'll bring in Walter Day. Oh, there you go. That'd be a good get. Okay, a couple other things. Um, this movie, this is not very well-known trivia, but there's a professor in this who invents this war computer. He's a pacifist. He ends up losing his his beautiful machine of learning to the government. He hates it because he's a pacifist. He retreats to an island. That role in the movie was written for none other than John Lennon of the Beatles. Did you know that? I didn't know it till you posted till you uh, posted it on Facebook today. And I, but I know I know Lennon is in some movies like How to Stop the War or something. He's, he's in a war movie, like a anti-war movie film or something. But I've uh, I didn't know that till you mentioned it today. Yeah, and it's funny because when you watch War Games, you can totally picture John Lennon in that role because it was written for him. 
John Wood does a great job, but I would love to be able to see sort of maybe an alternate version with John Lennon in the role. That would be great. Of course, had he lived, of course. They have to like Forrest Gump and put him in there with CGI. That would be painful. <laughs> okay. And the one last thing is, I, 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 this is a silly question knowing you, who is an 80s video game nerd. I know you have read the book and seen the movie Ready Player One, correct? Yes. Now, you remember in the book, Ready Player One, this movie features very prominently in that book. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. I don't remember off the top of my head. I don't like know immediately the references, but yeah, I remember it does. Okay. Oh, this is more for my listeners then. In the movie Ready Player One, it's this virtual reality world set in the 80s. It's all based on 80s pop culture. At the end of the movie, they have to recreate a famous movie and they walk through the actual movie and that's how they solve a puzzle. In the movie, in the movie, it's The Shining. But in the book, it's not. In the book, it's War Games. That's one of the puzzles in this virtual reality world. They have to recite and recreate every single line in the movie War Games word for word. That's right, because I, I read the book a while. You know, the book has been out for years, and mm -hmm. I read it a while back. Well, I haven't read the book since, but I've watched the movie since. So in my head, it's The Shining. <laughs> Unfortunately, I'd forgotten about that in the in the book. Yeah, so I'm just pointing out to my listeners that Ready Player One is a celebration of all things 80s. I love that book so much. And yeah. in the culmination of that book, the most important puzzle, Ernest Cline chose to make a recreation of war games, just pointing out how high he holds this movie in esteem as a, as a relic of the 80s. It was such a strange thing to make it The Shining in the movie. Yeah, which 1980, that's barely 80s. Come on. <laughs> I know. What is this? The Goldbergs? Were they just very loose with the 80s? <laughs> <laughs> yes. We're going to represent the 80s. We're going to do Vanilla Ice and MC Hammer because they were technically still in the 80s. Well, it's funny on the Goldbergs, uh, you see him playing the Game Boy a lot. That came out in 89. So it's really a 90s thing, you know? Oh, yeah. Yeah. I'm a child of the 80s. I, I consider the Game Boy stuff for little kids. That was way past my prime. Sure. Yeah. <laughs> OK. Are you ready to delve into the international spy thriller war games here? Indeed, let's do it. Okay. So again, this movie, it's very simple premise, but it's executed so flawlessly. I love it inherently. I was just engrossed in it watching it today. And we start with, uh, it's just two guys. One of them, I forget the actor's name. He's in The Rock. He's in a bunch of stuff. John something. And then Michael Madsen are employees at NORAD, and they're in the middle of a live nuclear launch, uh, uh, what is it, a test. Well, it's funny, Michael Madsen looking very baby-faced, <laughs> and is this the first time Michael Madsen pulled a gun on a character in a movie? It could be, you know, because later he's known for, like, gangster movies and stuff, but here, he, you, you don't, you know, he's like this, you know, he has the nuclear launch codes and the turning the key and all that. That's not really where his career went. <laughs> I actually did not know that was Michael Madsen when I watched it, I, only until I saw the end credits. I'm like, oh my God, that's Michael Madsen. I recognized him, but it was, but just lose his 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 so baby faced, you know. It's just so much uh, looks a lot different than he's not cool yet, you know. He doesn't, you know, he doesn't have the cool clothes or the cool look or the, you know. So this is pre cool medicine. So speaking of baby face, Matthew Broderick looks like he's about twelve years old in this movie. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, that's why you can, you know, that's why he gets away with, you know, basically, uh, you know, crimes on humanity and against the government. <laughs> because he's just got that cute face, you know? He's just so innocent looking. Yes, Matthew Broderick is 21 in this movie, and Ali Sheedy is 21, and they could legit legitimately pass for about 14. So, <laughs> excellent casting. He's just this pale-faced kid in his bedroom all the time, and she's into aerobics, and 
she runs she's she runs and probably does yoga and all that but 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 they end up getting together <laughs> they do although it's technically not a romance in this movie that's one thing i actually i i i can i uh the thumbs up to the the script writers here they don't turn it into a romance at any point really it's like a friendship yeah it's a friendship and there there might be a little bit of a spark between them but 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 it definitely doesn't turn into some kind of uh romance and um there, it's funny because right at first she's a little leery of um, him hacking into the school to change her grade, and it's almost maybe a turnoff to her. Mm-hmm. But then later she's really impressed by it, and she warms up to the idea, and she sort of accepts it. And it's almost like, you know, maybe that's going to become his go-to move from now on <laughs> is to show girls his computer hacking skills because it ultimately, you know, she's kind of impressed by it. It just takes a bit, you know, for her to get used to the idea. And, you know, hackers were getting so much tail back then. (laughs) (laughs) Right. (laughs) Maybe that's why I stayed away from computers. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, so, yeah, the movie starts with uh, these two uh, NORAD security officers, Michael Madsen and the other guy, John something, I forget their name. But they're there's the guys that sit in NORAD where the entire nuclear weapons arsenal of the U S is based and they control all war ap- operations in the United States. And they're sitting there and they get a, uh, like a loudspeaker alarm over the, the NORAD system. And it says, you've been given a launch code. You have 90 seconds to launch and they have to follow all the protocols, but it doesn't go that well because one of them cracks under the pressure, right? Yeah. It's kind of hard to blame him. I mean, if you're, you know, you're just two guys sitting in there and you get this message, you know, are you really sure this is the right thing to do? Yeah. <laughs> you know, I mean, he, he cracks under pressure. So Madsen pulls a gun on him. And I mean, it's kind of hard to blame him for cracking under pressure. I mean, what an enormous responsibility. And I always forget that scene is at the start of the movie. But that is, if people haven't seen War Games in a while, it's a very tense scene opening the, opening the movie where these two guys are required to launch these nuclear missiles. They're being ordered to by their superiors, and they both have to turn a key at the same time. And one of them cracks. He can't do it. He goes, like, I can't be responsible for 20 million people dead. I can't launch this. It turns out this was all a test. It was test to see if humans will follow their orders, and this guy wouldn't. And so this will lead to the premise of the movie that humans are not able to be trusted in times of nuclear war, you need someone who will be able to turn that key if ordered, and so they're going to remove all humans from the equation. Right. That's what the, the Dabney Coleman character, Dr. John McKittrick, comes in, because he, he thinks it should be turned over to computers. Yeah, and that's, again, the crux of the movie, and really almost every great science fiction movie turning over automation to the machines and it's not going to go well. We're going to find out there's a huge flaw in that thinking because humans cannot, or uh, machines cannot be reasoned with. Right. Uh, you know, you had the alien paranoia of the 50s and then the robots. And then uh, and even earlier, you had some, you know, robot paranoia with some of the science fiction novels. Well, in the 80s, it's definitely uh, nuclear and computers. Yeah. This is very much a snapshot of what life was like at that time. And this is these were decisions that NORAD and the United States government would have been facing, like if Russia attacks us. They say in the movie, if the, U- if the USSR launches nuclear missiles, we have 23 minutes until they impact United soil. If they launch from nuclear subs, we only have six minutes. And so we need a very quick response time. And that's why the whole premise of this movie is we need to turn this over to automation. The computer will make the decision, not the humans. Right. Which, I mean, computers, maybe, maybe they can make more logical sounds. But, you know, if you run by pure logic with no emotion thrown in, you get fascism. And I can see computers being very fascistic and, you know, not um, reasoning it through all the way like a human would, you know, with, uh, you know, being humans are more flexible in their thinking. So turning it over to computers, maybe not the greatest idea. 
Yeah, and again, you see a lots of lot. There's lots of arguments at the start of the movie. Should we have humans being able to turn the keys for the missiles? Mm-hmm. Should we have uh, machines? And we get one of the great characters in this movie. And even people who have not seen this movie in a while will remember the computer, the Whopper. The War Operation Plan Response, which basically plays war games all day long against itself to try to figure out the optimum strategy. Well, there's a scene where um, he's explaining the Whopper, and it, he's saying the Whopper thinks about World War III 24-7, <laughs> and that it runs simulations. And that really, really taps into um, sort of how maybe – it's sort of a, kind of an anti-war moment, I think, at that point, because it's – it's sort of uh, maybe the obsession with war and, uh, you know, just to have this computer that's just constantly running war simulations. Maybe that's necessary for strategy or whatever for the U.S., you know, because there was a Cold War going on. But at the same time, I think it might uh, be just a, maybe maybe I'm just reading a, much, a little bit much into it. But I think it says something. Uh, I get a little bit of what's the old movie? Uh, how I uh Oh, Dr. Strangelove? And love the, yeah, Dr. Strangelove. I got a couple of hints of Strangelove in this, and I'll tell you about another one in a little bit. But I think there's some a little bit of anti-war going on, you know, sentiment in this film. Oh, yeah. I mean, that's the underlying premise once you get to Stephen Falcon, that this computer was not created to create war. It was created to prevent war because it mm-hmm. tries to figure out all the simulations. Now, I'm going to... Drop a little travel tip for people. If anybody ever goes to Albuquerque, New Mexico, they have a museum there called the uh, History of Nuclear Power, like the Nuclear Museum. Have you ever been there? No. It's like the history of all nuclear power and nuclear weapons in the United States. And you think it would be lame, like this nuclear museum. But there's a whole exhibit in there dedicated to nuclear war and how it really brought peace to the world instead of war, because now you have mutually assured destruction. That the minute someone launches, both countries will be obliterated, so no one fights anymore. And that's kind of the whole premise of this movie. Because we have nuclear war, and because the Whopper can simulate it and re- realizes that mutually assured destruction will happen, it's actually created a peace, more peaceful world. That's their argument. Yeah, and Ozzy Osbourne has a song that sort of touches on that, uh, thank God for the bomb, you know, and it kind of, that. Uh, but yeah, I can see that. Well, there you go. So that's my travel tip. Go to Albuquerque, go to the Nuclear Museum. Hey, my wife and I went to the world's largest windmill museum in Lubbock, Texas, not long ago. <laughs> it's kind of the same thing, yeah. And it, it was really interesting. You know, we thought, uh, that sounds kind of lame, but we went, and it was pretty awesome, actually. So, yeah, go to the, maybe the, sounds like the nuclear uh, museum was cool. <laughs> so, what they do in uh, NORAD is they replace all their humans making decisions over launching the missiles because humans are fallible and the machines are not, and they create, they lock it into the whopper, they the computer basically will control all things and all logic decisions. And the computer, of course, knows that nuclear war is probably a bad thing, so it knows not to launch missiles. But we're going to encounter a scenario that there's a loophole in this system, and we're about, it's about to be exploited by a young man named David Lightman. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Gen- computer genius that, you know, if he applied himself in school, <laughs> he would do really well because he's so smart. But um yeah, just a brilliant, brilliant computer hacker. And he sort of predated, you know, all these in later TV shows like uh, Buffy the Vampire Slayer and with some of these comic book characters like Oracle. You know, these just computer, absolute computer hackers that it just seems so effortless mm-hmm. to hack into computers and which he definitely, um, you know, it just makes it look so easy. Yeah. And anybody in 1983 would have known a kid like this. <laughs> <laughs> right. He's, he's, he's obviously the sort of 
the uber version of it but but yeah I, I definitely knew kids in school that that were just you know unfortunately a lot of them weren't very good at hygiene as well <laughs> <laughs> how dare you <laughs> yes they were often greasy and swarthy and dirty right yeah it's, it's just because they spent so much time so much headspace and so much time with computers that there just wasn't room in their lives for you know just normal you know, human interaction and bathing and that kind of thing. <laughs> I'm going to steal a quote from Mystery Science Theater. Girls, what about girls, young man? <laughs> or how about from William Shatner? You, have you ever kissed a girl? <laughs> yes. From Saturday Night Live? <laughs> yes. Get a life, will you people? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so. So David Lightman, this is Matthew Broderick at his greasiest, is the little, the computer hacker, high school hacker, David Lightman. Although there's a great bit of trivia here at the start of the movie that it opens with him in an arcade playing a Galaga machine. And I read somewhere that the most of the preparation in this movie is that Matthew Broderick did not grow up in arcades. He had never seen Galaga. He like was a stage actor from Manhattan. He had never seen this type of type of thing. Hmm. So most of his preparation for the, for this movie was they bought him a Galaga machine so he could play it in his dressing room because he had to look like he knew what he was doing in the movie. Yeah, and I noticed that they said he, they also uh, gave him a Galaxian machine, which is a similar game. Galaxian was sort of the prequel, mm -hmm. or it came out before Galaga, and Galaga was sort of the and um, you know a sequel to Galaxian. But I, I never, I don't remember seeing Galaxian in the the movie. But apparently he had both of those games, uh, and I'd be curious if I ever get a chance to interview him for some reason, or see him at a convention or something. I would love to ask him if that, you know, made him become a fan of gaming, or you know, if he grew to enjoy him or played some other games or whatever. <laughs> I'm curious about that. I want to see him battling it out on the Twin Galaxies high score table. <laughs> <laughs> we actually have a Galaga machine in our house. That was Ryan and I went in together and bought it from a friend of mine that was moving <laughs> and needed uh, space. So we drove up to uh, Oklahoma and brought that sucker home a few years ago. So we have a Galaga machine in our game room. I would expect nothing less from the Weiss household. <laughs> right. <laughs> okay, I need a ruling on this. You're a video game historian here. I was watching, uh, you know, there's the King of Kong, the video game documentary. There's another one you recommended called Chasing Ghosts, which I watched the other day. In Chasing Ghosts, they had Walter Day and a bunch of other people talking about Galaga, but they all called it Galaga. Okay. I, yeah. Please, no. give me a ruling on this it's one, Brad. Galaga. It's definitely Galaga. Okay, good. That's, <laughs> that's what I call it, and that's... I hate to say it in a horrible way. That's horseshit, Galaga. There's no way. No one says it like that. Yeah, I don't, is that like the Vincent Van Gogh version of Galaga, you know? I don't know, but I'm, Galaga, no. They're saying it in the ancient Hebrew, the way it's meant to be pronounced. <laughs> Was it, There's like in uh, Manhattan, the Woody Allen film, uh, Diane Keaton keeps saying Van Gogh. And Woody Allen's just disgusted by it, you know, so I can, we can be equally disgusted with Galaga. Yes, Walter Day doesn't know what he's talking about. Right. <laughs> so, so anyway, yeah, uh, Matthew Broderick playing his Galaga machine, and he's late for school, much like Marty McFly. Kind of starts like Back to the Future. The slacker kid has to run to school, and he slips in. And apparently, he's not good at school. He's just a total slacker. And like you said, I knew we knew so many kids like this. The smartest kids didn't always get the best grades because they were distracted. Well, I don't know if I was the smartest kid, but I can relate to this so so well. I did not apply myself in school. I loved to read, and I loved – my mom would take me to youth bookstores, and I loved um, – I mean, I learned about, you know, satire and all that when I was a little kid from Mad Magazine. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, I, I, I like 
uh, one of the first books I read, you know, full novels I read was uh, War of the Worlds because I had the scholastic, scholastic, um, scholastic, excuse me, book club at school and all that. So I was, I guess, semi-bright as a kid, but I was not good at school at all. And in fact, in junior high, there was a Quickway convenience store right around the corner from our school. So, of course, I was late to school and would rush in and try to sneak in because they had Pac-Man, they had Phoenix, and they had Asteroids at the Quickway right around. Uh, and back then, uh, truancy wasn't as much of a – wasn't really – monitored as well as it is now so during school hours i, w I might be at a random putt-putt or a convenience store or something playing games and there really wasn't you know other than getting in trouble at school outside of that there really what you know nobody said shouldn't you be in school <laughs> you know i didn't skip a ton but i was definitely late from time to time i would ride my bike to school and i would stop by this quick way before and after and some sometimes i didn't quite make it to school and my girl i could I, I probably could have made a's and b's but i definitely <laughs> got my share of c's through d, c's and d's and being in athletics we got in trouble for you know bad grades so they'd line us up on the football field and give us licks and then crazily enough i mean they would give us the football coach of course the big burly football coach that hated basketball players gave out the licks and so he gave us hard licks and in the shower, it was a bragging ride if you actually got bruised uh, <laughs> on your butt from these licks. So can you imagine this? This was the early 80s. Anything <laughs> remotely like this now and how many people would be in jail and the scandal that would happen? What a, yeah, what a lawless society we grew up in, bro. <laughs> <laughs> it was friggin' anarchy. <laughs> my parents wouldn't see me for an entire summer. School was out. I was on my own until September. Like, basically, I'd take a bus every day. I could go into Seattle. They wouldn't even know where I was until dinner most days. It was crazy. Well, we lived out in the country. You know, it's a suburb of Fort Worth, so we could go into the city. We could go to Arlington, you know, where the Cowboys and Rangers uh, play. Well, back then, the Cowboys were actually closer to Dallas, but the Texas Rangers were in Arlington. We had Six Flags and stuff. But city, you know, really big city was half an hour from us, and we lived sort of out in the country, and so... You know, we grew up, we grew up like, uh, you know, Huckleberry Finn and um, Tom Sawyer. You know, we were cutting cane poles to make, or, you know, cane to make fishing poles. We were collecting turtles, playing baseball. Um, it was a great way to grow up. We would just get up in the morning and just take off on our bikes and go to our friends' houses and just explore, you know, just uh, we were. And, and, yeah, we would come home for dinner maybe or for lunch, uh, but we'd be gone all day, you know, most summer days. And our, our people would come over and just play outside. So it was it was a great time to be a kid, you know, a lot of freedom. Those summers, those endless summers that they talk about were, were true. <laughs> yeah, so David Lightman, very much like Brad and me, uh, young man, not particular, very, very bright, perhaps not dedicated to the world of schooling. Again, I almost flunked out of middle school, which is very hard to do, especially when you're in the gifted program. But I almost did because it was very important that I create Dungeons and Dragons games instead. Well, I remember in sixth grade, sitting there with my friends, drawing scenes from Battlestar Galactica and creating mazes. You know, just we would make mazes, just take a blank piece of paper and create these really elaborate mazes. And we would hand, hand them out to our to our friends for them to do. And so, yeah, you know, if it wasn't anything we could focus on that wasn't schoolwork. Uh, one time I did a book report on Star Wars, the novel. Mm -hmm. And without ever actually having read it, because it was just the novelization. So, <laughs> I was not the greatest student, for sure. <laughs> okay, so David, our spirit child here, uh, gets to school, and he immediately gets an F. He's handed his test that he just failed in, uh, what class is this, bio or something? I forget. Yeah, yeah. I think it was biology. 
because he talks. He has a great line in this this okay, classroom. Okay, I'll set you up for it. This is probably the funniest line in the movie. That David is just a slacker, doesn't get good grades, um, doesn't know the answers to the biology questions. And at one point, the teacher says, uh, "Mr. Lightman, perhaps you can enlighten us. Who first came up with the idea of reproduction without sex?" To which David replies, "Your wife." <laughs> yes, your wife. So. <laughs> David's first move in class is to insult the teacher and claims that his wife will not have sex with him, to which David is immediately sent to the office. Yeah, that was sort of a, a little bit of a Ferris Bueller moment, maybe a little darker than Ferris got, but you can see some of that Matthew Broderick, tw Broderick Ferris twinkle in his eye, you know, at that point. Yes, although we learn that David is such a bright young man that he knows getting sent to the office is not really not a punishment. It's actually a, uh, this is what he wants to happen. This is the goal, because once he gets to the principal's office, he just goes in there. He knows where the computer, the principal's computer is kept. He knows where the principal keeps the, the school's password on a little piece of paper. <laughs> and so now, by repeatedly being sent to the office, he always knows the school's password. And now he can do what he really does best in life, hack into the computer system and change his grades. Yeah, he's so laid back and easygoing at the office. I was always nervous when I had to go to the office, even you know later, even in like junior high and high school and stuff. But, um, he, but yeah, he's it's a good thing for him to go to the office. You know, just more more things to hack. You know, more ways to get to you know just have they update the password, so he has to you know he has to go to the office periodically. Yeah, and again, it cannot be overstated enough that technology was just starting in the 80s. It was brand new to a lot of people. The idea of having a computer in the first place was bizarre to a lot of people, older people that would have run schools. So the technology was not was a little ahead of what most people were capable of handling with technology. And so the idea that the people just write down the password on a piece of paper under the computer is probably pretty realistic for that time because there was no such thing as hacking. Nobody knew about that yet. Well, uh, speak, perfect setup for a story I wanted to tell you. There's a guy I know that was hardcore uh, computer guy growing up then. And at school, they were talking about computers. And they didn't actually have computers at school. Somehow the subject came up, and he told his teacher they had a computer at their house. And the teacher didn't believe him, and he got in trouble <laughs> for making up stories. <laughs> This is another guy that writes books about video games, and he, he but yeah, he just said, um, that's one of his anecdotes, that they just flat out didn't believe him. It was just, it's like saying you had a magic beanstalk or something. <laughs> it's like Back to the Future. Who has two TVs? You must be rich. <laughs> <laughs> right, exactly. Well, when I was a kid, you know, we had the one TV in the living room, and my ColecoVision was hooked up to it. Oh, yeah, that's right. The, the, the family computer, where the family video game system hooked up to the family TV, so one person could watch TV at all times, and that was it. Yeah, um, video you know video game systems were in the living room for for the majority of households until the NES era when you got longer, more complicated games and more more TVs started. So so kids would uh, get a TV in their bedroom and would be isolated and play these longer, more involved games, and they became more isolated games. And that, that sort of coincided with the uh, you know more people having more TVs. So it was kind of a conflict. Sort of getting off the topic of war games, but but that was the culture of the 80s. You know, that, that was the evolution of the game systems moving to the bedroom. I think that will be the subtitle for this podcast, Brad. It's called Getting Off the Topic of War Games, since we're doing it so well. <laughs> <laughs> well, this movie is just, it encapsulates so much of the 80s. So you kind of have to, 
it's just eighties all through it. Oh yeah. No, know? I agree. Yeah. So, okay. So jumping ahead, he gets kicked out of school. He goes home and he meets Ali Sheedy who has been sassing off in class with him. And she's a local girl named Jennifer who is way too cute to be hanging out with the nerd in school. But <laughs> I guess maybe that's one flaw. I mean, for a nerd like that to have a, such a cute girl in his bedroom, I mean, almost unheard of. <laughs> He's like the king of all nerds. He gets Ali Sheedy up to his bedroom <laughs> without having to trick her. She just willingly walks up there. <laughs> yeah, just, you know, nothing to it. She gives him a ride on her, on her motorbike and or her, her scooter or whatever it was. And, um, yeah, you know, just another day in the life of a nerd. What is it with these cute girls dri- riding around mopeds and motorcycles in the early? <laughs> like, in The Last American Virgin, Diane Franklin's doing that, too. Like, I don't remember any hot girls riding motorcycles. <laughs> no, I don't, I don't recall that. Okay, so she goes over to his house, and he says, here, come upstairs. I want to show you something. And she's like, okay. They go upstairs, and this is where we enter the lair of David Lightman, which is every computer and modem and giant floppy disk drive a person could have in 1982. His his room is nerd paradise. I swear to God. I look at it now. I'm like, oh, my God. I know exactly what that room looks and smells like because I've been in rooms like that before. <laughs> right. When I got a little older and did, but still lived at home and put a TV back in my room, and transferred my game systems back there and stuff. I remember um, I was going out with this girl, and we went to my house, and my parents were home and everything. And so we went back in the bedroom, and I tried to get her interested in playing some ColecoVision. <laughs> Good move, Brett. Epic fail. <laughs> Epic fail. Not my slickest move. <laughs> she was not – and, you know, that's not to say girls don't like video games or whatever, but – Back then, not nearly as many uh, did then as they do now. <laughs> yeah, that was a not a successful pickup line in 1982. Let's go play ColecoVision. No, no, it wasn't. And it was, a, and I didn't have many two-player games, so this was kind of an obscure, obtuse one. So it did, it did not go well. <laughs> but David has a plan to get the girls interested in him. Step one: lure her to the bedroom, which again is a very common tactic of guys. But now sure. he's got step two: show her how she can hack into the school's computer and change her grades. Yeah, and like I was talking about earlier, she's a little little leery of it at first. She thinks it's cool. She thinks it's neat. But then you can tell in the scene she kind of gets a little nervous about it and asks him to change it, change it back. Although this scene in particular, I don't know how many nerds watched the scene in 1983 and were like, oh, my God, you can do that? Like, this is like an inspiration. Any kid who was a slacker. Now, the only thing that held me back and other kids is that – back is that it was very hard to afford a modem or even find a modem in 1983. This was not something you'd get anywhere. Right. But oh my God, if we all had modems, all the trouble all of us kids would have gotten into back then. Oh man, no kidding. I can't, I can't imagine being a kid in today's world. I remember me and my friend used to sneak out at night back in the eighties and we would have a plan ahead of time. Okay. Meet at midnight at Seven Eleven or Putt-Putt or whatever, Whataburger, whatever was open all night, you know? And you know, we would just have if something happened, if something came up like at 11 and we couldn't um, get in touch with each other because you didn't want the phone ringing in your house and waking up your parents. Mm-hmm. You would you, you would just have to meet there, you know, meet at midnight at this place and if the person didn't show up. You just assumed something had happened. It's like being at Six Flags. You're gone all day. OK, meet at, at you know, eight o'clock at the tower. You had no way to get in touch with you, with each other if something happened or if you were running late or something. So back then it was much it was much more of a you know wild west situation <laughs> without you know immediate contact, without cell phones, without you know monitoring everybody's every move. It was much more uh, just it was, a, it was a wild time, man. It was kind of a, a great time to to grow up. Oh yeah, total free for all, and it, it made you grow up faster because you mm-hmm. start making adult decisions. Uh, adult decisions very young in your life because you are are in effect an adult because nobody cares. 
<laughs> right. Yeah, we were kind of on our own in a lot of sequ- a lot of singing, and you just had to learn some things for yourself. Yeah. So David is able to hack into the computer and change his grade. He changes his grade and her grade, and then she's like, she gets mad at him at first, and she leaves. She storms off. She's like, no, don't. She's like almost a little scared of him that he has this kind of power. Yeah, you can see her kind of looking at him a couple times, just kind of concerned, you know? <laughs> yeah. Okay, so that's the first thing we learned, that David can hack into the computer. He's very good with the modem. And then that night at dinner, I think he's uh, reading through a game catalog. And this is what nerds, computer nerds, myself included, would have done back then, is you'd read through these gaming catalogs, these magazines, Wired Magazine, stuff like that. And it would just have advertisements for computer games. And David learns about this company in Protovision, or called Protovision in Sunnyvale, California, right in the middle of Silicon Valley, that apparently has the most new cutting-edge games available. And if he, of course, has to have these. Yeah, and it's one of those great fold-out ads in magazines, you know, that just plays out and just, just irresistible, you know, so he has to find out about it. Yeah, this, again, very accurate to what this time looked like. This movie's so dead on. To quote Mona Lisa Vita, Vito, dead on balls accurate. It's perfect. And uh, so he goes up to his room. He wants to hack into this computer company and play their games. And he has a thing. Now, I'm not entirely sure how you could do this on a modem, but I'm assuming this is based in fact. He basically sets up an endless loop where he has his computer call every single uh, prefix and number in Sunnyvale, California, trying to hack into this company's modem. And he basically sets it on endless loop and comes back a day later to see what he's got. Yeah, they probably play a little fast and loose with the... uh... You know, the capabilities of computers, you know, stretches the, the uh, a bit, point a little bit. But I don't know. Maybe maybe a computer could do that. I don't I, I don't know. I don't know. But but he definitely uh, it's definitely a very powerful tactic to use. <laughs> Personally, I never saw a modem that could do this kind of thing. But then again, probably not. I read that they had a, uh, I think, quote unquote, small army of computer experts that were researching or, or advising on them, this movie and the technology and stuff. So it is entirely possible this technology did exist and David would have had it. If anyone, he would. You mentioned the dinner and we got to talk about David's dad <laughs> briefly, I think. All right. Tell us about David's dad. Because he has one of the greatest lines in the whole movie, I think. So there's this one scene where he slathers all this butter. He's a, he's a big nerd for starters. And he slathers all this margarine or whatever all over his bread. And he butters the corn with, with the bread, with the buttered bread. So he's got this corn dripping with butter. It looks so good. And then he bites into it and it's really hard. And his wife uh, is bragging, oh yeah, isn't that good? You know, talking about the vitamins and stuff. And he goes, could we have pills and cook the corn? <laughs> that cracked me up for some reason. I just thought that was really funny. Yeah, there's a couple throwaway funny lines in this movie that I always kind of forget. They kind of break up the tension. That's one of them right. for sure. Uh, the general has one later about pissing on a spark plug, if I recall. Yeah, right. Yeah, the general, is he's definitely someone we need to get into at some, at some point. Okay, so here we go. So David uh, invites Jennifer, this is uh, Ali Sheedy, back to his house the next day. She comes over. She wants him to change her grade again. And so they go upstairs, and she's like, oh, what's your computer doing? And he's like, well, it's searching every single phone number in Sunnyvale, California for Protovision Game Company. She's like, really? You can do that? And she's like, yeah, let's, let's see what I found. And he, he pulls up his number. It's like he's been trawling for fish all day. Let's see which numbers I found that had modem signals. And again, they, they explain this in the movie. If you haven't seen the movie, when you call a modem on the phone, it would make this really specific dial tone. So that's what the computer's been searching for, this dial tone. 
Well, when it's going through all those numbers, at one point he stumbles across a bank and he goes, that may be useful for later. <laughs> so he's basically, you know, he's a criminal. He's in, in, and when he, go, when he gets older, he's basically going to rob from banks. I mean, <laughs> <laughs> that's War Games 2. <laughs> there actually was a sequel, but I hear it's terrible. <laughs> wow. Okay. We'll get to that. I didn't know that. Okay. So when they pull up all the uh, the things that he has hacked into that are viable modem lines, and number one is the bank, like Brett said, and number two is a Pan Am flight reservation system to which he creates reservations for he and Jennifer so they can fly to Chicago or to, to Paris. Of course he does. Because he's a crook. <laughs> <laughs> so you are not Team David Lightman. You're Team Law Enforcement. Oh, no. I, I think he's great. <laughs> Makes for a great movie character. It's just in real life. Uh, there would be some problems. But, but Brett, he's under 18, so it's cool. Oh, oh yeah. Well, never mind then. Yeah. All good. And this is, yeah, this is even where Jennifer says. She's like, you're dialing every single phone number in California because he's in Seattle. And he's like, she's like, isn't that expensive? And he's like, well, there's ways around that. Again, more more chicane, you know, more more criminal behavior. <laughs> well, this was actually pretty well common. Even in college, I knew guys that had these little things called black boxes or red boxes or something, where you could dial around the long distance service and dial for free anywhere in the country. They just carry these things around openly and say, "Hey, want to borrow this and call for free?" Oh, I I I, I would have totally used that. I mean, when I was, because uh, I mean, it was ridiculously expensive to call long distance back, you know, in that time and. I um, when we first got cable TV, really primitive cable boxes with the dial controller. Um, a kid at school, one of these computer nerds, told me how to open the box and bend a little wire or this little, um, just this little piece of metal uh, where it wasn't connecting with the little dial, and then you could get you could unlock all the cable channels. Oh yeah. And so when we first had cable, uh, shortly after that, we had HBO and all the movie networks and all the you know. Everything. Yeah, free cable was a game unto itself back in the 80s. I remember um, when we first moved to Bellevue, Washington, we moved there, and two doors down from us was a lady who worked from the cable company. And she just walked over. She's like, hey, do you want free cable? We're like, okay. (laughs) So, like, yeah, this was a game if you grew up in the 80s. You had to know someone who worked for the cable company, and they could hook you up with free cable just by bending the wire the right way. Right. So we are no better than David. We were just weren't doing it on a global scale or quite as, you know, our crimes were just less serious. Yes. And to be fair, we were all under 18. So it's cool. Oh, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> the law doesn't kick in until adulthood in the 80s. Bingo. <laughs> OK, so now we come to the premise of the movie. David's third company that he has hacked into. It has there's nothing on the screen. It just says log on. And he's like, huh. He's like, it doesn't give you a welcome screen. It doesn't identify itself. What is this? And he starts trying to hack it, and he can't do it. And to someone like David, this is like a challenge. Like, there's no way right. a system is unhackable. So he starts messing around. And what does he do here? He he gets the, the games list somehow, right? Yeah, yeah. He, he starts cycling through the games, and they show you, like, checkers and chess and just sort of these, you know, relatively mundane, mundane games. But then it gets, you know, as he, as he scrolls down the list, it gets a little more serious. Okay, yeah, here we go. So he he's just doing help and lists, anything he can do. He comes up with a list of games. He has inadvertently dialed into the the NORAD war computer, which has a whole bunch of tactical games and simulations. He thinks it's a computer game system, and he sees, yeah, Falcon's Maze, Blackjack, Chess, Jim Rum, Gin Rummy, Checkers. 
And you get to the bottom, and now you get these hardcore games. It just says guerrilla engagement, desert warfare, <laughs> air-to-ground actions, tactics, biochemical warfare. And the granddaddy of them all, the boss level of war games, global thermonuclear war. And he looks at that, and he's like, oh, my God. Yeah, well, if you'll – I watched this movie twice, just uh, again, just to, to get ready for this podcast. And I noticed that as soon as he says that, or right around the time he says that, the music starts up in the background and sort of starts getting a little louder. David's expression changes. You know, it's really a great, and you, you were saying this is a perfect film. They really spent a lot of time and attention to detail with the drama. And it really kicks in when he sees that global thermonuclear war is an option. Oh, yeah. Just the music in general in this movie is awesome. Just there's a lot of uh, cutaway shots of like the, the Whopper computer. And it's really ominous. Like, uh, yeah, if you remember the, the sound that Maximilian in the black hole used to make that robot. It's like, vroom, vroom. yeah, it's like it's yep. an evil robot. So it's very, lots of ominous music going on in this movie. Right. Yeah, probably maybe a little bit of 2001 A Space Odyssey influence, maybe, you know, just in using music for drama. Yeah, I mean, you could almost make the argument this is a horror movie. It, it, ver it verges close to horror several times with how creepy it gets. Well, there's no worse horror than war, you know, nu nuclear war, for sure. Especially if you're over 18. <laughs> right. <laughs> okay, so David cannot hack into this mysterious computer, which, again, is the Whopper. And so he takes it to his friends. He's got a couple friends who are even bigger nerds than he is. And this is the wonderful Eddie Deason, the king of all nerds, making a film appearance. Oh, my gosh. That guy is just like, how could he do anything with else with his life other than being a movie nerd? Holy cow. He's just sort of – it's just built in with him. <laughs> uh, it's, it's hard to describe Eddie Deason to people who have never seen him before. He's in Greece. He plays a guy named Eugene. Just a prototypical movie nerd. Got the glasses, skinny neck, weird face, just talks real high. In fact, my son does a hilarious impression of him. I may see if I can record it and get it edited into the podcast here. But I do have to say, the first movie appearance I ever saw Eddie Deason in is in a movie called Laser Blast from the mid-70s, or late-70s maybe. He plays a bully. It's ridiculous. He, like, bullies the <laughs> I main I can't character. imagine that. I know. Like, is this a weird universe where the nerds are the bullies? But that was his first movie role, and then he's the king of all dorks in every movie after that. Well, Eddie Deason, if you've never seen him, he's he makes Sheldon Cooper look like Clark Gable. <laughs> I mean, he's just amazingly nerdy. And, 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 and they, they say, he I mean, you can read into it that his character probably has Asperger's. And I don't even know if they had diagnosed Asperger's in the early 80s. But his character probably has that because, you know, the guy he's working with, uh, you know, he had told him, um, the Eddie character had told it, you know, Marvin had told uh, the guy, you know, if I'm ever acting, you know, antisocial or something to let him know because he can't read up on social cues. <laughs> and so the Eddie, Marvin probably does have Asperger's and they kind of, and, you know, his just social awkwardness in the film. Yeah, but again, these would have been the computer kids in the mid early 80s. This is These are the kids that they're hacking. Yeah, I knew some people sort of like, I mean, not quite as just overtly nerdy as, as Marvin, but, but, you know, approaching that. Yeah, the Bill Gates types, we'd say. Yeah. <laughs> so, so David takes this the computer printout of all these games to these nerds, and the nerds are like, well, this looks like, uh, this isn't ProDivision, these look military or classified. And one of the nerds explains to him, these are all tactical logic games that teach basic logic, like checkers and chess, so this is some kind of military war simulator. And David, of course, 
sees it as a challenge. He's like, well, I want to play those. How do I back it? How do I get into there? And this is where we learn the concept of a backdoor password. Right. And, you know, David being the mischievous character as he is, of course, he wants the extreme. He's going to go to global thermonuclear war, passing up all those other games. And but, yeah, he does. And I read I was reading about the trivia and it um, it there's some computer terms that like, yeah, first cinematic reference to a firewall, mm-hmm. a security measure used in computer networking and Internet security. So, yeah, it was this movie broke a little ground with computer terminology, at least on film. Yeah, and I've heard a couple people, when I said I was doing war games, they're like, oh, there's a couple stupid things in that movie. And a couple people pointed out, you wouldn't have a military-grade computer with a command-line password, a simple one-line password. Mm -hmm. But I can see through that argument. I can rebut that because this was not written as a military-grade computer. This was Professor Falcon's learning computer, and it was written back in 73, which was 10 years before now. So I could totally Mm -hmm. see how it may have been a command-line interface at that point, and the military took it over, and they added their own security on top of that. But David found this backdoor entrance the military didn't even know existed. So I can actually rebut that, that criticism. Perhaps, yeah. I can see that. Yeah, so uh, they're trying to figure out, and the other programmer says, uh, well, you know, frontline security would be way too tough. It will be military grade. You'll never get in here. But there's probably a back door, and he explains, every time I create a system, I put in a simple password that I remember. So if I ever need to get there in the future, that whatever security anybody else is added on top of it will not know about it. I can backdoor it into it, and if I have to make changes, I have to take code out or anything. And this is, I can, I can see the logic in that. And so David's like, well, what's the back door? What's the password? And so the guy says, well, you have to learn about who created the system, learn about his life. Maybe you'll figure out about him. And this is where we get the Eddie Deason rant where he starts talking about how he's going to solve the problem. Do you remember that rant? Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, he really spazzes out. And that's... <laughs> yeah, he's like, uh, oh, you guys are so stupid. It's right there in front of you. This is how you're going to do it. You go right down the list of games, go right through Falcon's Maze. I can't believe how easy this is. Yeah, and David really does his research, and he uses a microfiche, you know, another great 80s reference point. And he looks for the old magazines, you know, just researching, um, you know, Falcon's life. And he really does, he really does his research and, and, and ends up, you know, finding a simple password that relates to, to Falcon's life. Okay, yeah, I'll give people the short version that this computer was designed by a man named Professor Stephen Falcon, this genius back in the 60s and 70s. He was an MIT professor. He created learning computers to teach them tactics, war games, taught them how to learn. Very, very distinguished professor. And uh, he dedicated his whole life to teaching artificial intelligence to computers. But then he died in 1973. And so David's like, oh, damn. And there's a whole section of this movie where he's researching this guy's life. And uh, that's the whole thing that he let we'll meet Falcon later in the movie. He's not technically dead. He just asked to be removed from military service. He didn't like that his computer was being used for war. This is the part that was written for John Lennon and would have been absolutely perfect for him. Yeah. Lennon would have been great in this role. And it's funny when, um, they, uh, you know, they're doing the research on Falcon and they discover that he's supposedly dead and that, you know, he wasn't that old. And then they find out he's 41 and they both agree. Oh, that's old. <laughs> yes. But yeah, Lennon would have been good in the role for sure. Okay, so so Jennifer and David have now are playing around in his room one day. She comes up to visit him again. It's three times she's now willingly been in his bedroom, which seems like a record at this point. (laughs) 
Right. It's, it's the third time. You, you think there might be some hanky-panky by this point, but they're really, really ultimately just friends. Yeah. David has not made a move yet. He's still a little too obsessed with this computer, which, again, would have been yeah. very on brand for the David Lightmans of the world. <laughs> right. Yeah. <laughs> so, so uh, David's reading up and he realized this guy Falcon had a son who died when he was young. He died in a car accident. And there's all this footage of this little boy that was like Professor Falcon's test research assistant and everything. And the kid's name was Joshua. And David's like, there's no way the password's that easy. His dead son that died in a car accident. Sure enough, he pops it in. Joshua was the password. And now he has inadvertently hacked into the NORAD war computer and all hell's about to break loose. Well, people still use simple passwords that relate to their lives, and hackers love those. <laughs> still happens today. <laughs> I, I, I should point out, when you get a new computer, you always get the name your computer, give it a name. Since 1985, every computer I've ever owned has been named Joshua in honor of this movie. Oh, that's cool. That's pretty nerdy of you, but that's expected. <laughs> oh, yeah. And I should point out, for all the hackers listening, that is not my system password, so fuck you. <laughs> <laughs> right. That's not your password. No. <laughs> I'll save you guys some time. It's not Joshua. <laughs> All right, so they get in, and he immediately wants to play uh, global thermonuclear war, although first the computer is, like, sentient. The sent the computer has artificial intelligence, so it starts talking to him, and David hooks up to a voice em uh, emulator where they can hear it, and this is where we get one of the most distinct parts of this movie, uh, Joshua's voice. Yeah, this leads to the most one of the most iconic, uh, really one of the most iconic um, bits of dialogue in the history of cinema. Shall we play a game? That's a terrible uh, reenactment of that, but you know what I mean. <laughs> can you can you make can you voice that? Greetings, Professor Falcon. Shall we play a game? Yeah, you put. I I, I definitely uh, didn't try very hard, <laughs> so that was much better. Thank you. I appreciate the the compliment. But, uh, <laughs> but yeah, so the whole rest of the movie, Joshua will be talking to them, but you hear it through the voice synthesizer, and voice synthesizers again sounded just like this, very flat, very monotone. They're fun to imitate, and and uh, David says, uh, "Let's play global thermonuclear war," and Joshua's like. How about a nice game of chess? And he's like, no, maybe later, Joshua. Let's play global thermonuclear war. And the computer's like, okay, if you must. And so, <laughs> I like how the computer wanted to be kind of reasonable at first and thinking maybe global thermonuclear war wasn't the best thing. You know, let's play something else first. <laughs> you know, almost like an authority figure or something. <laughs> so the Whopper was actually the good guy. It's trying to head off the problem. And about uh, even with the voice thing, you know, that was a big deal in the early 80s to get voice out of computers and consoles. Like the Intellivision Intellivoice, mm -hmm. you could get voice on your Intellivision. The <clears throat> excuse me, the Odyssey 2 had a voice module. Commodore 64, the TI-99, those all had voice modules that you had to pay extra for. Yep. I'm going to set you up. I'm going to wind you up and let you go here, Brett. But uh, give people a quick history on why the video game Berserk was so cool back in the 80s. Berserk is a pretty legendary title because there's, there's several things about it. I mean, it is. It was As far as I know, it was the first arcade game to have voice effects. And it was a big deal because the Atari 2600 version did not have voice effects, so that was a letdown. But then when the Atari 5200 version came out, it had voice. So, you know, they get kids at school bragging rights. If you upgraded over the 2600 to the 5200, Berserk had voice effects, and that was actually a big deal. Yeah. You guys, again, you guys are, I hate to say spoiled. You guys are so spoiled growing up in a video <laughs> game era with cool graphics and cool sound effects that we were like in pig heaven when a video game in 1982 came out called Berserk, where it actually said, intruder alert, kill the humanoid. Like, we'd never heard anything like that in a video game. It was so cool. Yeah, just a few simple sentences blew our mind. 
<laughs> yeah, so again, that's the most iconic thing. You'll be here hearing Joshua talking the rest of the movie. But uh, so David and Jennifer decide they're going to play global thermonuclear war. The computer asks, do you want to be America or Russia? They choose Russia, of course, because you always want to be the bad guys. Apologies to all my Russian listeners. <laughs> and they get to choose which cities to nuke in the U.S. And they're like, Las Vegas, we're going to take out Sin City. And they're going to take out their home of Seattle. So from here on out, yeah. there's now a nuclear strike on the top <laughs> targets in the U.S., Las Vegas and Seattle. I love how they're just giddy over the thought of destroying their own town. <laughs> <laughs> See, uh, to be fair, Seattle wasn't cool yet, so it was okay. Right, yeah. Before Nirvana. <laughs> yeah. And also they were under 18, so it's legal. Oh, of course. No big deal. <laughs> okay, so here we go. They've started the chain of global nuclear war against the U.S., and now we cut back to NORAD, the North American radar defense place, and all of a sudden, it's like ape shit in there. All the sirens are going off, all the lights. They suddenly think they're under attack from Russia, like World War III is about to start. Right, yeah, really great war room. You know, really just a lot going on, screens everywhere, a lot of action, and it doesn't seem fake or cheesy or ever seem like a set or anything. It's very effective. I was just reading about how they filmed that, too. All those screens, and for our, my listeners, NORAD has an entire wall of just war maps and what's going on in real time around the world. It's really cool. And I read somewhere that all that was done on Apple IIe computers. That's like 500 different Apple IIe computers emulating and being projected up onto different screens, but it was really hard to pull that off. Yeah, 83, I mean, that is just such an early time for computers. I mean... Uh, some of the, you know, the mainframe computers were still massive in 83. And, you know, we had personal computers, but, you know, like we were saying, they just, <clears throat> they weren't that powerful yet. They weren't ubiquitous. It's really early computer technology, relatively speaking. Okay, so here's the first attack, and I'll race through this, that it looks like the military is, or the, the Russians have launched all these missiles, and the U.S. goes from DEFCON 4 down to 3, which one step closer to nuclear war. Everybody's panicking, and they're all running around like, what's going on? They're scrambling their planes, they're getting ready to launch missiles back, and all of a sudden, the attack stops because David had to go out and empty the trash. <laughs> and you've got by the DEFCON, uh, the DEFCON sign, you know, one to five. You got a photo of Reagan just in case you forget who's in office <laughs> while you're watching the movie. And a little, you know, just uh, it, it's just a, it's the Cold War. I mean, it's all about it. Yeah. And again, this was a very real threat or fear in the back of people's mm -hmm. minds at all times that we could be at war with Russia any day. Absolutely. Although I'm sure it was worse in the 60s. Like by the 80s, I grew up in the 80s. Obviously, it was a thing, but I'm sure we had nothing compared to those kids that lived through the Cuban Missile Crisis. Yeah, we weren't hiding under our desks, you know, uh, to you know to to prepare in case the bomb was dropped or anything. We weren't doing those, you know, kids of the 50s and 60s had to do those, um, you know, in school. They would have, you know, now the kids, you know, have shooting, you know, where you prepare for a shooting. Mm -hmm. Back then, they had to prepare if the bomb was dropped by hiding under your desk or getting out, you know, in the hall, like that would have helped, you know? <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, those desks in school were nuclear proof. They could stop a <laughs> nuclear blast. Exactly. Okay. So David's at first attack, which is just a little game. And he had to go outside and empty the trash. He turns off his computer. It stops the attack. And everybody in Nora is like, what the hell just happened? And when the, the computer guy's like, no, it was a simulation. That was a glitch. Don't do Don't launch. That was just a computer glitch. And so, no one really knows what happened, but David sees on the news the next day, he's like, the, the newscaster says, you know, last night, uh, for three minutes, the world thought that uh, the, the United States government thought that we were in the middle of World War III, and there's a story, and David sees this, he's like, oh my God, was that me? He had no idea he was doing that. 
Yeah, and during that era, everybody had the news on. You know, the five and six o'clock news. You know, your dad was home from work, or your mom, or both. And you know, not as many moms worked, but 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 the household was sort of more, you know, homogenized with different people that lived in suburbia. And you would generally have the news on. And so a lot of kids watched the news just because it was on in the house. They didn't have YouTube or other distractions. A lot of them didn't have computers. Uh, most didn't. And you didn't have all these other sources of you know Facebook feeds and stuff, you know, for news, you had the news and a lot of kids watched them. So it's not really a coincidence that both, both kids were, you know, both, uh, David and, and the girl were both watching the news. Yeah. And again, this is actually different. See, I hadn't watched this movie in a while. I kind of remember David playing the game a couple of times, but he actually doesn't. He only does it that one time for three minutes and that was it. But right. what he has done is he has set off a chain now where he's told Joshua to simulate a nuclear attack. And Joshua, as a learning computer, does not stop a game until the game is over. So David right. vows never to call that number again, never to do this again. The government tried to trace him, but he hung up before he could do it. So, but the problem is Joshua will call him back because the computer is very insistent. We must finish this game, Professor Falcon. Yeah, that was a really effective scene in the movie. That, that, that kind of had a horror element to it. The computer basically seeming to become sentient and calling him back. That was a great scene. Oh, yeah. Yeah, this is what I'm talking about when I said this is like a horror movie at times. This is the scene yeah. where David realizes, what have I done? Now, the computer is now on a 48-hour countdown to full-scale nuclear war where it's going to actually launch missiles, and he can't tell anybody, and all hell's about to break loose because David panics. He's like, oh, my God, they're going to trace me. They're going to know this came from me. And sure enough, the FBI shows up the next day. They arrest him, and he's pulled into uh, some detention center in Denver or something. Yeah, and the projected kill rate, uh, if, the, if the bomb, you know, if this happened, if the war happened, was 72 million dead, oh, yeah. you know, so if you didn't know it before, this isn't a little kid's movie. I mean, it's serious. It's a drama. Yeah, and uh, okay, so the rest of the movie from here on out basically is going to take place in NORAD, the NORAD headquarters, where they're going to bring David out there, and they basically interrogate him. They think he's a spy. They think he's working with somebody. They're wondering how he got into their NORAD defenses, and he basically tries to argue, I was just some guy looking for computer games, but they don't believe him, and it escalates really quickly because... There's a nice bit of exposition here. There's like a tour group in NORAD, and because they're explaining what NORAD is to these tourists, we get to learn as in the movie what it means, and he's saying, you know, there's this DEF CON system. It goes from one to five. Normally, we're at five. We're at four because of David's little stunt last night, and if we go down to one, that's World War Three. and I think this is the only movie I've ever seen where we actually do get to DEF CON one at one point. Yeah, that was a little shocking when I first saw this, that they actually do get all the way there. Yeah, so we will get there. Okay, so David is now uh, uh, in custody. McKittrick, this is Dabney Coleman, one of my favorite 80s actors. We haven't really talked about him, but he's one of my favorites. He's so great in everything. He's the guy that runs the computer. He's trying to figure out how this kid got into his system. He thinks the kid's a spy. And again, just all all hell's breaking loose because Norad's trying to figure, still trying to figure out what happened. Yeah, a really great actor, and he does a great job of being authoritative, but while also not just being a total dick. So, so uh, the so David will at least sort of you know talk to him, and uh, just does a great fine line. You know, he kind of uh, talks to David instead of you know just lectures him, and he, he he's a terrific actor. And he was in another film that you guys talked about from the '80s, Cloak and Dagger. Oh yeah, um, just fantastic actor, absolutely. Okay, so there's a long section here where they're interrogating David, and again, this is not a comic movie at all. It's very terrifying that 
the government is saying, you, you're, you're a spy. We're going to charge you with espionage. We know you're working with somebody. You've made flight reservations with somebody to Paris. We know you have a partner. And David's like, no, that was you don't understand. And uh, basically, in all the confusion, the general says, I still don't believe that he's working by himself. I think there's another person out there. Let's go down to DEFCON 3. And so we're edging closer and closer to nuclear war because now the Russians have seen that the U.S. scrambled all their jets yesterday. Now the Russians are starting to scramble their jets. And like right. nothing David says makes a difference because nobody believes him. Yeah. And it's interesting that that, you know, what it, early in the film, when they booked the flight to Paris, that's just sort of seen as a lark. Mm -hmm. You know, he just does it because he can. And it bites him later when they think he's working with somebody and that they think he had a more elaborate plan. So it was a little good foreshadowing there. Yeah. Well, OK. OK. So so David is in custody here. And while he's in custody, he's trying to figure out some way to convince these people that he was just trying to get into a computer game. And he perhaps makes the mistake of hacking into Joshua again from inside NORAD. <laughs> Don't do that, kids. Yeah. That's when maybe the movie stretches its credibility a little bit. And then they leave him in. You know, it's a kind of a trope where they leave the, the guy in custody in a room by himself. Yeah. With a computer. So, yeah. Yeah. And it is a yeah. With a computer. It is a movie, though. So you have to take these, uh, you know, you have to suspend your disbelief. Well, OK. In all fairness, that's the scene where Mitch McKittrick gets called out to the command room because they're lowering the DEFCON 3 and he's arguing with the general. So there's at least a okay, plot. True, OK, true enough. And, and plus, he's under 18, so you can leave him by himself in the room. <laughs> exactly. What could a kid possibly do? Nothing's illegal. Exactly. <laughs> so so David hacks into Joshua again, tries to get Joshua to stop playing the simulation. And this is where he sees the projections. Like you said, 72 million people are going to die once this game is over. And he says, Joshua, is this a game or is this real? And Joshua says, what's the difference? <laughs> right. Chilling. Yeah. But then we get a little info where Joshua says, I've been trying to reach you, Professor Falcon. And then Broderick's like, but I'm not Falcon. Falcon's dead. He's like, I've been trying to reach you at your classified address in Goose Island, Oregon. And David's like, what? Goose Island, Oregon. So we get a little foreshadowing here that Falcon is actually still alive. He's not dead. And so the only person who can stop Joshua at this point is the guy who created him, Stephen Falcon. And from here on out, David's going to try to race to get to Falcon. Yeah, and that, that it, you get a little bit of adventure elements in the game where the, or in the movie where they go out to his residence and everything. And this leads to one of, another one of my favorite lines in the film. I don't know if you want to get to that point yet, but where he's talking about a guy that lives on an island not having a boat. <laughs> oh, yeah, the Seattle line. Yeah, I know that line. That line haunted me for years. We'll get to that in a second. Okay. Okay, so, yeah, so David... You know, yada, 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 over about 20 minutes here. He escapes from NORAD. He hacks this uh, security lock. He gets out. He escapes with a tour group. They're all furious because they were going to take him in for treason and espionage and arrest him. But he escapes, and he basically calls Jennifer, wire me some money. I'm out here in Colorado. We'll fly to Oregon. We'll go try to find Professor Falcon, and he's the only one who can stop this. And from here on out, it's just a race against time. Will they be able to stop it before World War III starts? Yeah, and he asked a lot of her to kind of be, you know, his accomplice. If she does this, she could get in serious trouble. Why aren't money and everything? <laughs> Again, under 18, so it's cool. Oh, oh, I keep forgetting. Yeah, it's a misdemeanor. <laughs> Treason is a light misdemeanor when you're under 18. That's right. <laughs> so, so they go to Goose Island, Oregon. It's this recluse island in the middle of nowhere. They probably made it up. I don't know if Goose Island exists. And this is where we meet Professor Stephen Falcon, who just lives there all by himself, played by, what's the actor's name? It's uh, John Wood. 
John Wood, that's right. So we meet John Wood, who basically is a man of peace who designed this learning computer, this amazing feat of science. It was co-opted by the military for war purposes. He politely asked to be released from his obligations, and they changed his identity for security reasons. He retreated out here, and really, he is just John Lennon at this point, living on an island, hoping for peace. He talks to nobody. He interacts with nobody. He's just a retired professor, and he really is not receptive to their arguments at all that he should do anything about this. Right. He's got like this, he's flying a, like a dinosaur, like a, he, when he, when they first arrive, he's flying like a remote airplane, but it's like a, it's like a pterodactyl. Pterodactyl. That's the word I'm looking uh-huh. for. Yeah. He's, he's flying a pterodactyl around and he's, he's into dinosaurs. And it's funny when they, the movie kind of gets philosophical at this point. And when they're talking to Falcon, uh, about, uh, you know, Falcon's talking about extinction being a part of the natural world when they start talking about war and stuff. And I love David's line, St- extinction is stupid. <laughs> <laughs> a classic Davidism. <laughs> yeah. yeah, as he boils it, you know, um, Falcon's being all philosophical and everything about, you know, the destruction of man and, you know, all of that. David just says it's stupid. <laughs> Point Lightman. Yes, the excellent rebuttal from Mr. Lightman. <laughs> Yeah, so this is Falcon's argument that he created this wonderful tool. It was used for war. He really has no use for humanity humanity anymore. And he says, you know, nature eventually gives up when the human race or animals are not meant to be here anymore. Then the, then nature will just basically knows when to give up and just uh, cause an, ex, an act of extinction. And he's like, this is really what's meant to happen. Humans have come too far. We've created nuclear weapons. We're not meant to do this. We don't deserve to be on the earth anymore. And that's his his stance. I could stop Joshua. I don't want to because this is what people have asked for. So it's it's very chilling to talk about this scene in the middle of a riot slash pandemic where everybody's trying to riot right now. (laughs) Right. And the movie, like, it it gets philosophical at this point. David kind of, you know, the more they talk to Falcon, David says, I wish I was like everybody else in the world. And he, he regrets not learning how to swim. Mm-hmm. You know, at this point, uh, while they're on the island, you know, with the water all around them and everything, and they can't get off this place. And he just starts, he kind of has just sort of like a, an epiphany about how maybe he's uh, taken some things for granted or he wasted some of his life. I mean, even though he's young, he's still, it, it's just like a wake-up call at this point. He gets really serious. It, the movie takes a philosophical turn at this point. Yeah, it's very, this scene's very deep, and it's very well acted. Mm-hmm. And again, it just, it kills me that John Lennon was not in this scene. I would have loved to see him reel off some of these lines, because Falcon has some really good arguments where he says, you know, extinction is part of the natural order. He's like, there's no such thing as a winner in nuclear war. The army thinks there will be, but there's not. And he has the quote here, We'll be lucky. We'll be vaporized very quickly because I'm right next to Portland. We'll be gone in two seconds. He's like, we will be spared the uh, the horror of survival. Right. Death is preferable. Yeah, that was a uh, it's, it's a serious movie. I mean, it 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 it, it broaches some uh, pretty serious uh, topics, you know, of existential threats and everything. Yeah. But eventually the kids kind of win him over where Jennifer says, you know, I'm only 17. I don't want to I'm not ready to die yet. And David's like, it doesn't have to be this way. And they're like, won't you make one phone call and call NORAD? And Falcon says, you know, if humanity is planning its own destruction, a phone call won't stop that. Right. Great line. Movie has a lot of great lines. Okay. So David and Jennifer just leave. They're like, when's the last time you cared about anything, old man? And they like storm off. This is where we get to the line. They're on an island and they have to swim back to the mainland. And 
and and they can't swim. David doesn't know how to swim, and so he's like, "What kind of an idiot lives on an island and doesn't own a boat?" And Jennifer's like, uh, "What kind of moron?" He said, "What kind of asshole?" Oh yeah, what kind of asshole? Sorry, <laughs> which makes it a little funnier for, for because it's kind of it's just a, in contrast, you know, to this serious, you know, professor type. <laughs> I just, that was a funny line to me. But then Jennifer digs right back at him. What kind of an idiot grew up in Seattle and doesn't know how to swim? <laughs> right. She throws it at, throws it right back at him. I got to defend that a little bit. Seattle, no one swims in the ocean because it's too cold. Yeah. Yeah. And it's it's not exactly sunny weather in yeah. Seattle. No one swims there. Most people don't have pools because it's not California culture. It's not hot enough to own a pool. So it's not that out of the question that people in Seattle wouldn't know how to swim. So I got to stick up for David a little bit here. Right. Makes sense. Okay, so they're about to leave, and then all of a sudden a helicopter comes after them. They think that Falcon has turned them into the FBI, but in reality, that's him, that their speech about being young and wanting to have a future ahead of them has swayed him, that he's going to fly them all the way to NORAD, and he's going to help them stop Joshua. When you saw this movie the first time, were you surprised, or do you remember if you were surprised that it was him and not like... They were getting arrested or something. I don't remember, honestly. But yeah, it's, the helicopter. it's played very straight. Like it's a scary scene, like they're about to go to jail. Yeah, I think it's effective. I think it probably convinced a lot of viewers that it was, you know, the police or FBI or whatever. OK, so here we go to the rousing conclusion of the movie. And again, we're skipping over a lot of stuff in the middle here with as we cut back and forth between Falcon and NORAD as NORAD is going from DEFCON 3 down to DEFCON 2 that the radar, Joshua keeps telling them all these Russian planes are in their airspace now. They're flying towards them. And so the U.S. is sending up real warplanes. And so now they're going down to DEFCON 2. And then finally, right at the last minute, right before Falcon gets there, they actually do go to DEFCON 1. They're like, we have incoming missiles that will be here in 10 minutes. We have Russian jets in our airspace. We are at DEFCON 1 for the first time ever. World War Three is about to start, and that leads into the last super tense last 20 minutes of the movie. Yeah, this is... You know, the movie has been great all along, and then the ending really, you know, some movies will be really good for a while, and then the ending kind of falls flat or lets you down, or it, it can't possibly live up to, you know, what's happened before, but this movie really pays off, has a great ending that pays off. Yeah, and it's great because the movie knows, it's like, okay, we're at the final section here, and it's Falcon, and the kid's running into NORAD with a security detail helping them in, and you see the lock, there's this huge metal padlock that slams into place behind them, now they're in a totally mm -hmm. secure facility, no one's getting in, no one's getting out, either World War Three happens or this gets stopped, there's no no turning back now. Right, yeah, it's the stakes have gotten even higher. Okay, so here we go. Get it. We get inside NORAD, and uh, all the generals are getting ready to launch the missiles. They're starting the launch codes. We have eight minutes until the Russian missiles impact us. Falcon and the kids come running in. They're like, "Don't, don't fire! It's a simulation! It's a simulation!" And they know Falcon. They've grown up with him. They know him. He worked, used to work there, and they they start arguing: Is this real or not? And Falcon says, "Logically, think about this." Why would the Russians suddenly launch every single missile in their arsenal with no warning, with no provocation? They just know you're going to fire everything back. Again, it's mutually assured destruction. Think about this. Why would they do that? This has to be a glitch. Right. As Sting would say, even Russians love their children, too. <laughs> That's a great quote. I've never heard that. That's an awesome quote. I love that. Yeah, it's in a song. It's in a... I can't, I, off the top of my head, I don't remember which one, but yeah, great, great line. Okay, yeah, so Falcon tries to convince them. It says the missiles are going to be here in two minutes. Do you see any evidence there are actual missiles out there? Why would this happen? And so they have to take his word of faith that nothing's going to happen, and he just basically convinces them with logic. Computers 
I mean, humans do not behave this way. This is a computer game. Do not get tricked into this. And somehow he convinces them, and there's a super tense scene where we wait for the impact all around the world, and it just never happens. But it's really well done. I love this moment. Yeah, and the cheering from the uh, you know the work the crowd in the room is really convincing, and it's just a great scene all around. Yeah, it's the, the one guy. There's one. There's one air. It's like every air force base around the country is about to get hit, and so they're listening to them on the radio. And one of the uh, air force bases, the general's out there, so it's like crewman. I forget his last name. Some some rookie crewman who just happens to be on the radio. He's like, "Hey, we're still here. Oh my God, we're still here." It's like a great yeah. moment. <laughs> Right. And it's just got and I love how nuclear war, the futility of it is compared to tic-tac-toe, a game you can't win. And it just I think that's really profound comparison. Oh, and that came up earlier in the movie. I forgot to mention that. Yeah. OK. Um, earlier in the movie, Falcon says he created this learning computer, but the learning computer was good at tactics, good at strategy, good at projections. There was one thing it could never learn, though, and that was futility, that some games cannot be won. And he specifically mentions tic-tac-toe, as Brett said, as a game nobody ever wins, so it's a, it's a pointless game. Right, and near the end of the film, and the computer's playing itself at tic-tac-toe, that's what uh, they get it to do. And the screens are blinking to orchestral music. It's a big grand finale. Finale. It's almost like the grand finale, like at a Fourth of July fireworks celebration. That's what it sort of reminded me of. You've got the, you know, nowadays they'll have these big finales with, and a lot of the fireworks displays in the bigger cities will have, you know, orchestral music playing. And it's just a big grand finale. It's just an awesome ending to a movie. Oh, yeah. Yeah. If you want to see a great use of music and lighting and editing and timing, watch the last 10 minutes of War Games. Because I'm going to set what, what Brett just said, that they've averted World War III. The missiles were all supposed to come down and attack the U.S. Nothing happened. And everyone's relieved. It's a big release of tension. And everyone's happy because they think the movie's over. But you see Professor Falcon looking over Joshua, looking around. He's like, Joshua doesn't think the game is over, does it? The computer launched all the missiles on the U.S. Now it's time for round two, where the U.S. launches the missiles back at Russia, except Joshua is actually hooked up to the NORAD computer. Joshua is going to launch the missiles for real. And he all of a sudden locks out all the security and all the override passwords. And now he starts his own countdown where he tries to figure out the launch codes. And now everyone is all excited that the day is saved. But Falcon's like, no, it's not. Joshua, what are you doing? It's almost like the Terminator's still alive kind of thing, you know? <laughs> it's like uh, 2001. Dave, what are you doing? That's <laughs> Right. As Joshua turns to life now, and so they're like, well, just unplug the computer. Joshua is trying to launch the missiles, and the general's like, just unplug it. And McKittrick's like, no, you can't. If you unplug that computer, it will interpret that as a total destruction of NORAD. It will immediately launch all the missiles, and we're screwed. So, like, we can't do anything. Joshua's now totally under control, and nobody can stop it. It will not accept any passwords. Yeah, and Barry Corbin, who plays General Berenger, who says, you know, just unplug it, he does a great job in this movie. And he, here's what I came up with. He chews his lines like the red man tobacco, He, you know, <laughs> that, that he chews in the film. He chews the scenery. He owns every scene, and he just does a great job. He's a great character actor. And in recent years, he's been on The Ranch. That net, I don't know if you've seen that Netflix sitcom. No called the ranch he he's he's barely recognizable because he's probably he's got to be in his 80s and he's in that just kind of as the same 
you know, good old boy type character. But but yeah, he does a great job in the movie. And he has two of the best lines here at the end when they say, uh, uh, let, let Falcon and the kid try to hack into the computer. And he's like, I'll piss on a spark plug if I thought it would help. <laughs> yeah, there, there's there's lines peppered throughout the movie, just just placed, you know, artfully placed through the movie just to, like you said, to, to relieve the tension a little bit. And here's his other line where he tells off Dabney Coleman. And again, there's nothing greater than seeing Dabney Coleman told off in a movie because he's always a scumbag. Where the general says, Mr. McKittrick, after careful consideration, I've come to the conclusion that your new defense system sucks. <laughs> right. And so, yeah, so Falcon and uh, and David now have to try to figure out how to stop Joshua. That he's, trying, he's cycling through these launch codes. He's basically trying to generate his own launch codes so nobody has to tell him to launch where he can launch on his own. And it's basically a race against time. He has about five minutes, and they're like, how do we stop him? And Falcon can't do it, and David can't do it. And then David gets a stroke of genius where he says, tell him to list games. And so list all the games, which is, again, is the first way he got into Joshua. And he notices there's one game on the list that is not there that should be. Now, Brett, what would that game be? Tic-tac-toe. Of course, tic-tac-toe, the one game that nobody ever wins because it's stupid and teaches futility, the game that I guess Falcon never really played much with Joshua because it's a dumb game. And now they realize we can teach Joshua about futility real quick by making him play tic-tac-toe against himself an infinite number of times. Yeah, and they call it a strange game. The only winning move is not to play. And it, it really uh, – uh, it does a great job of sort of illustrating the futility of war, futility of nuclear war. Yeah. And just the only winning move not to play. That's a great uh, – you know, it's, it, it, this, this movie goes so far beyond – what it could have been. They could have just made, you know, just sort of a pot boiler thriller, you know, that was cheap and obvious, but they, this is a really, really well-made film. Yeah. And there's a lot to learn about war just by watching this movie. I mean, there's some great lessons. And again, the last 10 minutes with Joshua playing tic-tac-toe over and over and over against itself as it's trying to recycle the launch codes and try it's trying to generate the launch codes and trying to figure out what they are. And there's this one lady, I don't remember her name. She's counting down. Oh, he has five codes number. He has five numbers. He only has five to go. He's got six. Oh, he's got eight. He's got eight. And it's like very tense. And then right when Joshua gets the 10th launch code, the computer like over, over, uh, extends itself and fuses out because it's you drawing so much, uh, computing power from playing tic-tac-toe and it shorts out and everything goes black in the room right before the missiles would have launched. And this is where we get the line, I will do this, where he just says, Greetings, Professor Falcon. A strange game. The only winning move is not to play. There's this beat, and he says, How about a nice game of chess? Yeah, it's, that's great, because tic-tac-toe is such a simple game, but it can drive the computer bonkers, and chess is so complex. And that's, you know, it's just, there's a lot to this movie beyond... You know, just the destruct. You know, the potential destruction of the world. It goes deep. Yeah, no, totally agree. And again, I'd put this last ten minutes up against the last ten minutes of any movie I've ever seen. It's so tense and it's timed and edited so well. And then all the lights come on and Joshua has learned futility. There will be no war, and everyone cheers. And 
it really just stops right there with McKittrick shaking Falcon's hand and then Dabney Coleman and Matthew Broderick tousling each other's hair playfully. Yeah. <laughs> but it's like the denouement of the film. Oh yeah. A big sigh of relief. Cause we're not going to have world war three. And it's really, it just ends right there. And man, what a fun movie. I, I, this movie is so good. It's like, I know they always talk about the breakfast club and Ferris Bueller is the best movie of the eighties or ghostbusters, but like you've got to put war games up there. It's so fantastic. It's absolutely phenomenal film, and it does manage, you know, it, it, it deals with serious subject matter and, it, you know, existential threats and everything, but it manages to be fun throughout. So with that, we have walked through one of the strongest movies of the 80s, one that I think everyone should go out and watch again, and young people should go track it down, even if you have to pay for it. I'm sorry. But, yeah, this is such a good movie, and again, I want to... <laughs> worth paying for, for sure. Yeah, it's worth paying for, but it's so gripping, and I have to imagine it holds up very fantastically, because, like, it's a nice little time capsule of the 80s, but the theme and the pacing and the movie making is just so well done. Yeah, it really holds up well. For something that is so of its time, it holds up uh, in terms of, you know, like you said, the pacing, the acting, the drama, it holds up extremely well. Sometimes movies that are so of their era just don't hold up this one really really does oh yeah absolutely and it's not as light and fluffy as you remember it being either it's a hardcore science or a hardcore political cold war tension movie it's fun <laughs> yeah and when you're six you know i was 16 when i first watched it you know watching it now as a 52 year old i see it very differently because i i take it you know when you're 16 you don't take things quite as seriously, but when you see this movie now, it, it resonates on a deeper level. And I'll always remember, Brett, the first thing my parents said after we watched this movie, you're not getting a modem. <laughs> That's great. Probably with good reason. <laughs> All right. So we're going to sign off here. Uh, where can people reach you if they want to hear more about your video games or your YouTube channel? And I know you had a Kickstarter campaign you wanted to plug as well. Yeah. So currently on Kickstarter, if you just go to NES Omnibus on Kickstarter, you can back the project. You can get your name in the book for very cheap for just $5, or you can get the book for $50, or you can get the signed limited numbered edition for a little more. Just go to Kickstarter and look for NES Omnibus if you love 80s gaming, if you love the Nintendo and all that stuff. And you can find all my stuff at brettweisswords.com. I'm not going to give you a ton of Twitter and all this because all of that is accessible all the clicks, all the links are at brettweisswords.com. Yeah, and again, Brett is the real deal. He's been a, a video game journalist for years, and like I said at the start, he probably has way more followers than I even do. So I, I really appreciate you stopping by. I know it's very late for you tonight, so I appreciate you stopping by <laughs> to talk about war games with me. Uh, it's been a lot of fun. I've really enjoyed it. Um, you know, this is this is definitely my wheelhouse for sure. I, I've, it's been a, a, lot, a ton of fun and you're, I've, I've listened to a number of episodes of your podcast and I've really enjoyed them. So it's great to be on. All right. Thank you. And be sure to listen to my next one about the King of Kong, which you are not on. Uh, <laughs> I guess I'll listen to it. <laughs> All right. So anyway, again, thanks for listening, everybody. My name is Mario Lanza. This is Staff Picks. If you need to reach me, you can reach me at staffpickspodcast at gmail.com or on Twitter at Mario J. Lanza. Until next time, I'll be out there searching for movies that deserve more love and I'll try to find somebody interesting to come on and talk about them. I'll talk to you guys later. Stay away from the modems unless you're under 18. Goodbye. Greetings, Professor Falcon. Strange game. The only winning move is not to play.